invite you to open your Bibles today to the Gospel of John, chapter 7. John, chapter 7. I just gave a title to the sermon a few moments ago, and for lack of really trying to understand how to title this passage, I'm simply calling it The Problem of Jesus. I'm sure you've seen the bumper sticker, you've seen the sign, Jesus is the answer. And while a very popular line, these next two chapters, John 7 and 8, point out that there's a problem with Jesus. And when Jesus shows up, there's trouble. Jesus is confrontational. Jesus has things to say that create conflict. And there's turmoil that surrounds his ministry, particularly in these two chapters. Chapters 7 and 8 are bookended by secrecy terms. Uh, Initially, the brothers tell him you need to get out of this little back hick town of Galilee. And if you're the real deal, you should leave the secluded place and go to the big city where people can see your works. The important people. The prominent people. In other words, secrecy is not your friend, if you want prominence. So get out. And at the end of chapter 8, the bookend of this passage is, Jesus is in the temple. They're threatening to kill him. They're starting to gather up stones. Jesus hides himself and slips away. Because Jesus told them, my time isn't yet. It's not here yet. So we'll begin by reading... And we're going to take, uh, there's, there's about six different sections here. And I struggle a little to know how to break it up. Uh, there's not a lot of agreement as to where the pieces actually separate. But we're going to look today at verses 1 through 13. So the Gospel of John, chapter 7, reading verses 1 through 17. Let me get some focal assistance here. <clears throat> After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He is a good man. Others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet, for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly. Of him. 
The Gospel of our Lord. Glory to you, Lord Christ. We have here this series of confrontations, a series of debates. And the question underlying all of these confrontations and debates is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus really? And this, these confrontations and this conflict engulfs his family, engulfs the Jewish people, engulfs the Jewish leaders, engages a woman caught in adultery in the beginning of the next chapter. And Jesus responds rather pointedly in each of these confrontations. And in these two chapters, we find two short teaching sections. One of them on how Jesus himself is the living water. With that, he issues the promise of the Holy Spirit. And then how he is the light of the world, an invitation to people to exit the darkness and enter the light. And both of these themes, water and light, are in fact themes of the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles that Jesus is celebrating or that the people are celebrating and to which Jesus eventually goes up to the feast. So in summary, there are three kind of major feasts to which at least the adult males were to attend in Jerusalem annually. The first one is the Feast of the Passover, probably the one we, most, we understand best. And in the Passover, they celebrated their deliverance from Egypt or the Exodus. The second one is the Feast of Weeks, which comes up to Pentecost here very shortly, where they celebrate with the first fruits of the grain harvest, and they celebrate their entry into Canaan and the renewal of the covenant. And the third one is this feast, the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, or someplace in the Old Testament it's called the Feast of Ingathering. And this is where they celebrate the final harvest. And typically, what's first fruits was the harvest of grains. And this feast of booths or tabernacles is where they gathered in the olives and the grapes, specifically in their climate. And you might say this was the Jewish people's annual campout because they got together and they built tents or little booths out of branches and leaves, and they lived outdoors for seven to eight days. So... It was their annual campout. And they specifically celebrated God's provision for them during their wilderness journeys. And there were two ceremonies during that time, one with water and one with light. And we'll talk about that later in this, in this uh, series. But the question that again emerges is, who is this Jesus? Who is he really? And you know, it's still a poignant question today. It's a question that honestly cannot be ignored. And it's a question that you cannot answer from a neutral posture. It reminds me of the old gospel song sang as a boy. Someday your heart will be asking, what will you do with me? The words of Jesus and the poet in the chorus says, neutral, you cannot be. And there's something about Jesus. There's something about his person. There's something about his mission, about what he had to say and what he ultimately did. That means we simply cannot be neutral when confronted with the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus 
really. If you were to get nearly anyone in the world, and there's probably qualifications to that, but if you were to get nearly anyone to make a list of the most important people in the history of the world, Jesus' name would need to be on that list. 2.4 billion of the world's population today claim to be his followers. An additional 1.9 billion Muslims claim him as a great teacher. And there you have well over half of the world's population giving significant credit to this man Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago. So well over half of the world claiming some level of fidelity to this one man who lived 2,000 years ago. It's safe to say, I think, that globally throughout the history of time, there is no single human being who has been more influential. And yet, so many, so many people remain muddled about who he is who he was. And even so many of his followers, shall I say, so many of us, or all of us so much of the time, find ourselves a bit muddled about who this man was, who this man is. And let's be honest, even those who consider themselves to be the most radical adherents to adherence to this man Jesus still struggle to sort out the implications of his claims, his teaching and the mission that he's extended to his followers. Why is this? You see, Jesus is in conflict. This man Jesus, whom we say the gentle, winsome one, and so much of this first part of the Gospel of John that's how he has presented himself, as a gentle, winsome, healing, bringing wine in place of desperate need, the one who restores, the one who crowds are drawn to, and then he breaks bread for them. This Jesus is in conflict with something. And when that something shows up, it's like, the fire in Jesus' eyes comes out, and battle is on. And we don't see it happen but so often, but when we do, it's sharp. And I've just been listening to uh, confession time, I suppose, for some of you. been listening to Eugene Peterson's uh, translation or interpretation of the New Testament, the message. And using very contemporary language, he tells the story of the Gospels, writes the story of the New Testament in language that you might hear on the streets of any modern city in America today. And I found particularly Matthew 23, where Jesus has very sharp confrontational words with Jewish leaders. It was jarring. Far more jarring than the King James language. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. I, it, it was rattling. And you know, that is the Jesus that was alive 2,000 years ago and walked the hills of Palestine, 
showed up in the temple, had these conversations with leaders that represented the people of God of the day. But he's in conflict with something. He's in conflict with something. And that conflict shows up here in these two chapters, John 7 and 8, in multiple conversations. What is it that Jesus is in conflict with? So let's unpack it a bit. Verse 1, Jesus is staying in the region of Galilee, which is up around the Sea of Galilee, one of the most beautiful parts of the land of Israel, Palestine, the Holy Land, as we often call it today. While many of his disciples there have found his teachings hard, we just see the end of chapter 6. They said, oh, these are hard teachings, and they kind of backed away. It notes that in Jerusalem, which is the religious capital, the political capital of the day in many ways, but definitely the religious capital of the Jewish people, they not only were drifting away from him, they wanted to kill him. And the term here in many translations is used, the term Jews is used. And I think maybe with our modern context, we need to be sure that we distinguish that between kind of the entire people that we call the Jews. This term specifically does apply to Judeans. And there were Jews who lived in Galilee as well. So it wasn't just all the people of Judea either. But this term is used specifically for a group of religious leaders who represented the religious elites of Jerusalem, represented there in Jerusalem, in the temple, with whom Jesus was engaged in this deep conflict. These Judeans were leaders, and those under their immediate influence, and they are actively trying to kill him. They long to kill him. They'd like to see him wiped out. And Jesus' conversation here in the hill country of Galilee raises this issue, his conversation with his brothers. I'm not going to dive into that term. Uh, it's a bit of a division in the church as to who those people actually were. Okay, and I'll just leave it at that. But they were his close kin, his very close kin. Closest, of course, being half-brothers, maybe cousins, who knows. But they were his brothers. Ones who were to be the closest, most trusted advisors. The people who've got your back. Right? If you've got a good brother. Okay. I had no brothers. No biological brothers. But that's what they tell me. And I, I have been in my lifetime, especially as a teenager, ganged up on occasionally by brothers. Because I did something that annoyed one brother. The other brother had his back at least for that moment. And it was two against one. Okay. They're the natural kind of protectors that we have in a kind of healthy familial context. But here something else is going on. Jesus has been doing these miracles kind of out in a little tiny village in West Virginia. Okay, and his brothers say, listen, what you're doing, it's pretty spectacular. If you really are who you claim you are, the son of God and maybe even Messiah, head out to Washington, D.C. That's where the media is. That's where the press is. That's where you're going to get traction. If you're going to be the Messiah, if you're going to lead this renewal of the people of Israel, got to get to D.C. 
Okay, and it doesn't take too long when you're up there to realize that's why a lot of people have showed up there. They're there hoping for some kind of power and influence to be able to reshape the agenda of the nation according to their own ideology. But we find this isn't from a kind of, we've got your back, Jesus, we believe in you, we're rooting for you perspective. It says they didn't believe in him either. So this is kind of a cynical, probably even a touch snarky. You think you're so great? Yeah, you're doing some of this stuff. But you're a nobody unless you show up there and do it. Come on. Let's go. We're headed to this feast. Let's go. If you're the real deal, go to Jerusalem where the crowds are even now gathering for this festival. Do and say those things there. Stop hiding out here in Galilee. Show yourself to the world. And Jesus' response points to two particular reasons why he resists their invitation, takes a pass on their invitation. The first one is an issue of timing, and the second one an issue of hatred. On the issue of timing, he simply says, my time has not yet come. Now, that should ring bells, of course, Jesus' encounter with his mother at the wedding in Cana. What's going on there? It's been months now since we looked at that passage. But they're running out of wine. His mother, possibly in a position of influence in the wedding, maybe even responsible for attending to the needs of the guests, says, Jesus, they're out of wine. Implying, you can do something about this. Would you please do something? And Jesus says, woman, my time has not yet come. And I think I saw that with fresh clarity uh, recently at an art event at the Church of the Incarnation. Uh, One of America's great artists has magnificent paintings there. And as he was commenting on his artwork, he pointed out that when Mary was asking Jesus to disclose himself, which is what he would have had to do. And it is what he did as a miracle worker, that he was come from God and was able to bring wine from water. What Mary was saying to Jesus was, you're a special messenger from God. Help your people. And what Jesus was saying is, woman, do you have any idea what you're telling me to do? Because once I go public with who I am, With my first miracle, there's no going back now. I'm headed straight to the cross. Mary, do you have, Mom, do you have any idea what you're doing? You're giving me up. And when you give me up, it's the cross. But what does he do? He discloses himself and begins his journey to the cross. Same thing here. Jesus goes up to the Feast of Booths, performs these miracles. Now, his time is not yet. Okay, there's a lot of debate around, does that mean it's not his time yet to go to Jerusalem? And so he just delays by a couple days? Maybe. His time is not yet to go to the cross, so he has to keep his mission a bit, you know, under the radar. 
because the time that is his time is most commonly referred to as the cross time. So maybe both. I don't know. All he's saying is, I'm running on a different clock than you are. And my time has not yet come. I'm running on a different calendar. I'm running on a different clock. Jesus was on course to great controversy, ultimately a collision of powers, one that would lead to his crucifixion. And in this journey, he is on his father's time. Okay, and I'm sure, humanly speaking, there was a possibility for him to go to the Feast of the Booths, preach and teach and perform miracles, and be crucified at the Feast of the Booths. But that wasn't God's calendar. He was to give his life during the celebration of the Passover, the celebration of the Exodus, because this was going to be the greatest Exodus in human history, where the human race and all creation is being delivered by the sacrifice of Christ on the cross from all that separates them from their Father, the sacrifice by which all things were to be restored. But this collision was was, in, was fueled by hatred. And Jesus makes it very clear, the world hates him. The world hates him. And we come now to the issue of this hatred. And what is this world that hates Jesus? Early in the Gospel of John, we have the same term, God so loved the world. God loved the cosmos. God loved all that he had created, including all living creatures. God loved. And God loved it so much that he gave his one and only son, Jesus. So it's all creation, the planet, the galaxies, all living creatures, humanity. God made it. God loves it. Jesus declares that unequivocally. But inside this created world, there is now an attitude, a posture, what he later calls in his epistles, a spirit that is opposed to God, is working against God, and now Jesus as his representative, as his person, incarnate person in the world, this spirit, this posture is now against Jesus and hates Jesus. Most intense human emotion apart from possibly love, which I think is greater than hatred. And this hatred is against Christ and against his kingdom. It's what is described in Genesis. It's what the Apostle John again describes in the epistle of John, it's represented by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's displayed in the temptations Jesus encounters in the wilderness. So Jesus says, I'm running on a different calendar than the world is running. He says to his brothers, your time is always here. You can always go up. You can always disclose yourself. You can always be who you are. And the world accepts you. Now, why does the world accept you? Because you're still operating on the same agenda that the world is operating on. 
which is this kind of self-centered, self-actualization posture that says, I, I'm kind of in control of my planet. I'm kind of in control of my space. I have my own little kingdom, my own little fiefdom that I will rule according to the desires of my own heart. And Jesus is confronting that, is testifying to its evil, and the world hates him because he represents God's timing, God's methodology. The rule of Christ in the world confronts human autonomy, independence, selfishness, self-centeredness. And he says, when I show up, I point it out. And it doesn't always mean he speaks and identifies it verbally. His very person at times simply exposes it by the way he lives his life. And the world is not only that which publicly, defiantly opposes Christ. It slides into the lives and attitudes of those who bear the name of Christ. It's also present with us, with me. In our confession this morning, we confessed, and I believe probably for all of us truly confessed, the attitudes and counter-Christ motivations that show up in our hearts at times. Slowness to learn of Jesus' ways. Failure to follow him, particularly in moments when they conflict with our desires. Our reluctance to bear the cross. Some of the language we used in our confession. The poverty of our worship. Where we come to worship and we're distracted. Our hearts are far away and we go through the motions. Our neglect of fellowship and of the means of grace. Our hesitating witness for Christ. Hesitating sometimes because of fear. Sometimes because of shame. Sometimes because we prefer to be loved and liked rather than hated. Our evasion of responsibilities in our service, our imperfect stewardship of the gifts God has given us. Those are things we confess to. All of those things are, in fact, attitudes, motivations of the world that stands in opposition to this Christ. And to all of that, we truthfully say, Jesus is the answer. In his person, in his sacrifice, in his forgiveness, in his giving us of a new life, but let's also be honest. Jesus is also the problem. Because he's the one that exposes it. He is the true human who shows up. And is the antithesis in so many ways of broken, fallen humanity. And sometimes we're more comfortable with who we are. In our brokenness and self-centeredness. Than we are in a life that's poured out to him on behalf of him to the world. We're prone to self-protection rather than self-giving. We're attention-seeking and opportunistic rather than 
being content with being on pace with God's timing in God's calendar. We're prone to be worldly in the bad sense. Just as Jesus lived under the authority of the Father, so we as disciples of Jesus must find our place within his kingdom. And being a part of the kingdom of Christ means our calendar is written by the Father. He puts the appointments in and we say yes. Our affections are ordered by his purposes. And he rewrites his laws on our hearts. But it's a journey of transformation, of confession, repentance, and giving ourselves up to the fresh life of Christ. And it does mean, as Jesus so often said, we're going to experience hatred. Sometimes that comes from people who are truly given up to this world. Sometimes it comes from people who claim to be the bearers of Christ's kingdom, but have distorted it, misrepresented it, and have used their power and influence to build something other than the kingdom of Christ. Now, if you always face hatred and violence, it's probably because you're a jerk. Okay, let's be honest about it. But if you never face hatred and violence, it probably means you aren't identifying with this Jesus in ways that are faithful to his teachings. Note the Jesus effect in Judea. Because a few days later he does go down. On God's calendar, he goes down. Not with a massive crowd, like he will in his final entrance into Jerusalem before he dies. But he kind of slips in. Slips into the city. Undercover. But he comes into a crowd who is looking for him. And they're looking before he shows up. You see, no one can ignore this man. No one. All the people in Judea, in the city of Jerusalem, they know he exists now, and they're looking for him. Granted, they don't know what to do with him when they find him. They're divided on that issue, but they're looking for him. And I think this is just a poignant reminder that it was not only the people of Judea that are in search of Messiah. Someone to sort this mess out, to put things back to rights. It's the human quest. It's the human quest to find someone, something, some ordering principle by which all of this is going to be sorted out because we know inherently something's broken and wrong. And we know that it's inside of us too. And so therapists are overwhelmed these days because we know something's messed up. We're looking. We're looking for him, but we prefer to be able to monitor and control him and his agenda and his methods and his timing. But that's not how you come to Jesus. There's a reason that the most basic creed of the Christian church throughout history has been, 
Jesus, this Judean man, is Lord. And we either bow to him as Lord and receive the gift of life, the outpouring of the living waters of the Holy Spirit, and are invited into this new, transformative, reorienting life of Jesus. Or we say, no, I will be Lord. And there's no middle ground here. So whenever Jesus shows up, there's conflict. There's a conflict of wills. There's a conflict of desires. But John is unequivocally clear in his gospel that if you surrender to this man, Jesus, you will have life. Abundant, eternal life. Some said he's a good man. Some said no. He's leading people astray. You see, that's what Jesus does. You're going to have to answer it one way or the other. Except good man just isn't quite enough. Good? Yes. No one calls me good who doesn't acknowledge that I am God, the Father. Fear kept many people quiet that day. Because even the ones who thought he was a good man were afraid to identify with him publicly because they knew the Jews and what would happen if they openly cast their lot with Jesus. Same is true today. And honestly, even in many religious structures who claim the name of Christ, you cast your lot with this man, Jesus. It may not go well. It may not go well for you. But don't let that fear keep you quiet. The costly, confrontational Jesus is still on the scene. And he's still saying, follow me. Follow me. And each of us must decide. In fact, each of us will decide because it's not a decision you can escape. We are deciding right now. We're deciding in every breath we take, every decision we make, we're deciding. Is Jesus Lord? And will I surrender to this Jesus as Lord? And to those who say yes to Jesus, we're received and loved by God and loved by his son Jesus. And the eternal life of the kingdom of God is poured out upon us by the gift of his Holy Spirit. And today, to those who have said yes to Jesus, he invites us to come to the feast. And we might ask, is this the feast of the Passover? Where we celebrate the exodus, our delivery from bondage? Yes. Is this the feast, maybe, of the first fruits? Yes, Christ is risen the first fruit of many who will be raised, who will be raised. And as we trust in him, we too receive that eternal life and are raised with him at the last day. Or maybe the Feast of Booths, where we celebrate God sustaining us in the wilderness. The answer to that is yes. This table today is God's table. And as God's table, it's the food provided by God for the people of God.
Come today with joy and celebration. Let's pray.